Today we're going to be in James chapter 1. What we're going to do, as always, is we're going to jump to Proverbs. Um, if you're not familiar where that is, it's right really in the center of your Bible, that really big book, Psalms, it's just to the right of that. So we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 10, two verses, and then we'll jump back into James. Proverbs chapter 10. Even though you're turning there, I'm going to read it, and I'll read it again, so don't fret. Uh, Verse 2, it says, Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but he casts away the desire of the wicked. In verse 2, treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. And that's true, ill-gotten gain, treasures of wickedness, getting ahead by dishonest means, by hurting your coworker, or by sabotaging somebody so you could get that promotion, or doing things that are illegal, or whatever, subversive. It's not a good thing. And you know what? You might enjoy it, but it'll be for a short time. Uh, but it doesn't profit anything. And certainly, God gave Solomon the wisdom of the Proverbs, but a lot of these Proverbs really have a, um, a physical application, temporal, but also an eternal application. Ill-gotten gain does nothing in the long run. And if you're not submitted to God and you're that type of brutal type of person and you don't know the Lord, the only thing it's going to get you is hell at the end of the road. But righteousness delivers from death. A righteous standing with God. You know, a justified standing, right? Um, even in the Old Testament, just being submitted to God and trusting Him and following Him, that delivers from death. And certainly we're talking about eternal death. It, it takes you into heaven. And in the New Testament, we know that Jesus justifies us. Uh, and that righteous standing will deliver us from death. And in verse 3, it says, But the Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but He casts away the desire of the wicked. Now, some will translate that means the good or the righteous will never go hungry. You know, it's interesting, but I like to bring it, again, more toward an eternal perspective. He won't let the righteous soul to famish. Who we are, what our makeup is, is, our uniqueness, our personality, the part of us that, you know, when we die, we go to heaven. You know, who we are, our spirit. He's not going to let us to waste away and famish the righteous. He's always going to be there for us. And, you know, sometimes it's a matter of we need to tap into his lifeline. Um, but he's always going to refresh our soul and our mind. You look at the Psalms of David. David had a unique relationship with God that all people could have. It's a model for a relationship with your creator. But the wicked's pursuits, he casts away the desire of the wicked. Their pursuits won't last long. And you know what? All this stuff agrees, and that's why I put the two of them together. Because if you look at the wicked pursuits, and it's not bad to make money, but it's certainly bad to make money wickedly, at the expense of others, illegally. And what the Bible is telling us, and look at today's society. In the 80s, somebody who was a pauper, in the 90s, you know, the computer explosion, dot-com companies, people in the 80s who had made a nominal wage, if they were computer savvy, in the 90s they became millionaires and maybe billionaires. And then we saw recently with the downturn of the economy, you know, there's an inflation and contraction of money. We talked about that in Revelation 18. And we know that the millionaire today could be the pauper tomorrow. The pauper today could be the millionaire tomorrow. And it's constantly, money is constantly changing hands. So why work so hard, especially illegally, to make that fortune when it could just be gone like that? The Ponzi schemes, the Madoff scams, the, um, you know, the, the stock market taking a downturn. You got it one day, tomorrow you don't have it. 
So I would just say to, to sum all this up, I don't know, just do the right thing. It's a little pithy statement. So just do the right thing, you know, make money, um, but just do it honestly and, and put it in perspective. Okay. So jump to James, all the way forward to the New Testament. And the last time we saw the introduction to James and really focused on the trials, let's put this in perspective, of believing Jews. This is what James, who James wrote it to, the scattered tribes of Israel, not the lost tribes, but the scattered tribes. Um, we saw the trials that they faced, but we also looked at the trials that we face because God's word isn't just for those folks in that time period. It's timeless, right? We laid the groundwork last Sunday for what we're going to cover today. And if you weren't here last Sunday, I'll try to reiterate enough of it so that you kind of have that foundation that was laid. Today we're going to finish chapter 1, and the pivot point is going to be verse 12, which we read last Sunday, and we're going to read this Sunday. And here's this pivot point shifts from understanding trials to understanding temptations. Okay, Verse 12. James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been proved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now the same Greek word used in verse 2, which we covered last Sunday, for trials same Greek word is now contextually translated to temptations in today's verses. Let's just brief review. The word is parasmois in the Greek. And we've said this last Sunday. It means to put to proof by number one, experiment. By number two, testing. And three, sometimes temptations and temptations being a subset of trials under that umbrella. James goes on to explain temptations. Number one, Understanding that God will allow a temptation to run its course to strengthen us, but he is not the author of temptation. That's very important. You see, just like when we preach today, we have contemporary society. We see things that are paganism. We see things that are wrong with society. Well, you know, back in James's day, there was a pagan society that ruled the folks at the time. And there was the Roman gods, and you had the Greek gods. They were polytheists. You had a god for love, a god for the head god. You had subservient gods, the god for the messenger. God's everywhere. Uh, but the issue with the Greek and Roman gods was that they were weird. I mean, you could do things to tempt the god, to make him do bizarre things. And he could also tempt you. It just was a very strange... Of course, we know that they're false gods. But in their mind, it must have been a frightening time if you lived under that that uh, theology because you didn't know if the God was happy with you, angry with you, if he was going to make you do something or turn you into a frog. or It just was a whole weird system. And James is saying, listen, you know what? You've heard this stuff, but God, not only can he not be tempted, it's ridiculous. What do we have that we can tempt God with? And two, he doesn't tempt anyone. And really that's key because if you fall into temptations, and we're going to talk about temptations, don't blame God. Oh, God gave me such a temptation that I couldn't handle it. Don't blame God because that's not scriptural. Even some, to, some of today's uh, theology, five-point Calvinism, if you take it to its extreme, and some will actually tell you, five-point Calvinists will tell you that that's true, they believe this. Because there's no such thing as free will, 
God is so sovereign that every choice I make, God willed it. So free will is pretty much eliminated from T-U-L-I-P, the whole five steps. Uh, that God becomes the author, not only of temptation, but all evil in the world, because he willed it to be so. And of course, the Bible doesn't preach that. As a matter of fact, that's offensive to God. I'm going to read a scripture to you in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. One scripture, one verse. It says, the Apostle Paul says, Now no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. Again, we always think our situations are unique. Oh, I was just so tempted. There was nothing I could have done. Lord, this was a unique situation. And eh, wrong. The scripture says, it's not uncommon to man or women. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So pretty much there's an escape hatch going on here. Now, all of us, has, all of us if you live long enough, have fallen maybe to a temptation. Some a little temptation, some a big temptation, however you want to look at it. But we've all resisted them, and we've all kind of gone with it at, at times. But looking back, do we remember seeing the escape hatch? Because according to this scripture, it's there. It's there. You know, and the question is, do we shun temptation now? So looking back at any of our temptations and anything that we might have fallen in, there was always an escape hatch. Maybe a phone call from a friend, maybe uh, uh, just a way out. You know, you can move your legs and move your arms, run, like Joseph in Egypt. You know, the temptation was there and he, he took off. He ran out of the house. So the escape hatch has always been there. The second point, temptation's power is really only as great as, as the desire inside of us. Think about that. What is a temptation to me if I'm, there's no desire in me for it? It doesn't do anything for me. And you know, we know that Jesus is a fisher of men. We know that when he talked to his disciples, he said, I'll make you fishers of men. But we also know that Satan is a fisher of men. Check this out, more in a nefarious way. See, Satan, he, he has that, he's done this for thousands of years. And he kind of is like the great psychologist. He looks at every person, examines them, and sees what makes them tick. And he's got his rod and his reel and his twine and his little hook. And for some, he puts, you know, pile the money on the end of that hook and goes, plunk, falls into the water. Hey, there's Bob. Hey, Bob, come on, money, money, money. Ah, he didn't bite. No problem. I got, I got all, all the time in the day, night, thousands of years. Takes it off, puts, you know, success. Driven so much that power. Ah, that's a good one. Put that on the line. Whizz, plunk. Bob, come on, come on, Bob. Ooh, Bob's biting. I know it. He just writes it down in his little memo pad, right? Because I know it makes Bob tick. You know, George and Joe and Bill and whoever. And you know, there are some guys in our fellowship that are fishers. There's a few guys that I know that, that like to go fishing. And you know what, guys? You guys are a bunch of deceivers. Think about it. Think about it. You sit there, same thing. Salt water, fresh water, you know where you are. You know the depth of the water. You know what type of fish are there. You know what they like. And what you do is you try to deceive the fish. You put like a big fat juicy worm on the end of the hook. Whizz, bloop. Two fish are in the water. Bill and Bob look at each other. Hey, I don't see that big fat juicy fish or that worm in these parts. Let's, I'll race you to it. They take a bite, they're hooked, and they're out of the water. So, you know, fishing is really a deceptive sport. It's true, you know? I mean, they have all kinds. I've seen the lures. These guys with their bait boxes. There's, there's shiny ones. There's juicy ones. There's wiggly ones. There's ones that jump, and they just try to entice the fish to bite onto that lure. And each fish has a different bait that makes him tick. 
But Satan does the same thing with us, doesn't he? He knows just the right bait to use because he does it enough time where he can figure us out. So that's what we're looking at here. Now, third point. The first chapter up to here, we can see that there's really two roads. And if we're honest, if we've you know, lived old enough, long enough, we've navigated at some point both of those roads. Maybe been on one road, been off the road. And let me explain those two roads to you. Number one, the first road is a desire. Some will say, well, it's a predisposition. Whatever you want to call it, there's something inside of you that you like, okay? And there are things that you like that you could desire that are good. There's nothing wrong with that. And then there's things that you could desire that are against God's will, and that's bad. And then what happens is the other part of the road is a temptation. That's on the outside. And then what happens is the desire on the inside is, is mated with the temptation on the outside, you know, and we have a pair of kings. We have a match, right? And then if, if it's, again, against God's will, and you, you jump into that, and you're hooked, that becomes sin. Sin can run into habitual sin. Habitual sin can run into death. Why? Because we just read it. Sin, when it is full-grown, brings forth death. And we're going to explore that. Now, understand, too, that there's some gaps here. Uh, sin doesn't always run into habitual sin. If you, or even habitual sin, if you repent, you break the cycle. God always allows us to repent and break that cycle. Okay? Uh, so there's gaps, there's, there's rebuffs. You know, if, if there's a temptation that's doing something for you, but you go, you know what, I'm just not going to do it, Lord. You know, help me out here. And you break away from that. It's not sin yet, according to what I'm reading in the scripture. The second road is there's a trial or a temptation. And then there's faith. There's calling a friend, there's fellowship, there's prayer, there's being in the word, there's a whole bunch of things. And you break that temptation, you break that cycle. There's obedience, there's perseverance to the end, and then there's the crown of life, which we discussed last Sunday. Okay? So we see that road. And James is amazing because he uses a picture of human development. Now, I use the picture of fishing, um, and James is good in this book because everything is a simple picture that we can understand. Well, the people at that time, people in our time, what's common? Human development. You know, we're here because of human development. We're here because of conception. So he's basically showing that um, he looks at this sin and he likens it to uh, conception. Baby is conceived in the womb. Baby comes out. Baby grows up. And there's a big gap between the conception and full grown. Now, human development is a good thing, but he's using a negative connotation with sin, being grown up. And what we have here is that in the physical and the spiritual, I believe that James is making two applications. Remember, he's speaking to believers, and he's speaking to them about spiritual matters. Okay? So first, physical. How does that lead to death? Well, especially in law enforcement, I've seen that. I've seen the average life expectancy of, of a felon is very low. You know, there could be drugs, there could be living fast, there could be, they could die of a gunshot, there could be so many things that happen to this person. So if you live fast and you live for sin, you'll probably die fast. So that leads to death. But what about in a spiritual application? I want to turn to three verses. 2 Peter 2.20. 2 Peter 2.20 through 22. Now, this is Peter speaking, and the antecedent here, of course, is false teachers and what can happen to a false teacher. But certainly... Uh, there's no reason why this can't happen to anyone. It says, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, and we're going to talk about pollution again, 
they, uh, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. It's a willful choice. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her own wallowing in the mire. Hebrews 10 also speaks about if we willfully sin, and we can get into that when we're in Hebrews, um, you know, if there's a willful sin and there's a purposeful behavior and there's a continual uh, issue here, he says we trample the Son of God underfoot, and we can cover that uh, later on. But James, again, is speaking to believers. I believe just, and this is, I could be wrong, but I believe just as God won't force us to come to him, God won't force us to stay with him. Chuck Smith, when uh, going through this scripture, spoke about a man named Charles Templeton, who was one of Billy Graham's protégés, and they said he was such a great evangelist that he was going to outshine Billy Graham. Well, Charles Templeton had an adulterous relationship, forsook the faith, and wrote a book on atheism. He totally turned his back from the Lord. It was a choice that he made. You may ask, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible says that we can grieve him, and we can quench him. And we can turn them down so low that I've used the example of a pilot light on a stove where where's the Holy Spirit in your life? I don't know. Look under the hood. Oh, yeah, it's really small. It doesn't put out a lot of flame, but that's where we put the Holy Spirit. So interesting things to look at. But I think the bottom line is, what is James saying here? Right, let's go back to the whole temptation. James is saying, quit dabbling. Quit dabbling with these temptations. This is the progression in your life. Don't do it. Quit being double-minded. James said last Sunday when we read, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You know, tell me no one's ever done this, okay? Temptation is like a, a big fire, and it, it's, it's, it's mesmerizing. You know, it's, I think it's a good example. Fire is mesmerizing to look at. It's got nice warmth that comes to it, and this is temptation. And sometimes, even believers, we look at a temptation, and we're like, you know, that kind of feels nice. I'm a little mesmerized by the lights. And we, we kind of navigate that fire, that temptation. And we want to see how close we can put our hands before we get burned. Okay, I can go this far without it engulfing me. And why do we do that? Why do we toy with sin? Why do we toy with temptation? You know, James is giving us the result of that temptation. So he's saying to these Jewish believers who might be tempted because they're scattered across the world and they're isolated. They may have little communities, but for the most part, they're struggling in their faith. And James is telling them, be careful. Okay? Verse 16. Verse 16. Continuing on. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be kind, a kind of first roots of his creatures. So, don't be deceived. Understand, James is saying, the contrast between what I just told you that God is not the author of and now what God is the author of. God is not the author of sin and temptation, but he is the author of every good gift, starting with biological life. It's a gift. There's so many things that we can do when we're born. You know, we... We're young, we start off in life, and you know what? Look, what can you do with your life? The, the, the roads are endless. But it gets even better with being born again, with spiritual life. Now we become regenerate. We're regenerate people. Now we have biological life and spiritual life. And anything else that's good in between there is a good gift. 
and it comes down from, from the Father in heaven. Nobody else could give these gifts. So James is saying, you want to see the good gifts? The good gifts come from the Father. The bad stuff doesn't come from the Father. Verse 16, he says, don't be deceived. Basically, anyone telling you anything in opposition to what you just read and heard, that person is deceiving you. And there's similar warnings. Sometimes a preacher will have to be a little crusty from the pulpit and, and have to be a little um, maybe terse or uh, the scripture there is, is convicting. But that's something that is part of our job description. It's what we have to do. The one who's shunning that is the one who's lying to you. And whether it's Jude or James or Jesus or John or Peter, they all spoke harshly about those who try to deceive you and the false teachers. So James is saying it again. Verse 17, he says, the father, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word for turn was used in planet rotation. Very interesting. The father of lights, turning, planet rotation. Understanding that the light that a planet receives is directly proportional to its distance from the uh, uh, closest star and also its rotation. God's light, we know, is always constant. We saw that in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. It says, in the holy city, there will be no night. God will provide that light, and it will be continuous. And you know what's interesting? Malachi 3.6 says, God does not change. God does not change. He is always consistent. If we see a shadow here and there, or if there's a darkness here and there, it's because we've moved, not God. He's always in the same position. Actually, Dave did a good study two uh, Wednesdays ago about the emerging church, where things change. You know, they say, well, 2,000 years ago, it was cultural. The Bible was written for cultural reasons. And now, you know, we can start changing things because the culture has changed. No. There are things that we can know about God. There are things that are constant about God. And God never changes because he's perfect. He doesn't have to change. Verse 18. He brought us forth for a reason. And being born again spiritually, we become the first fruits of the redeemed. And we talked about the first fruits. You go back to the Old Testament, the, the, the harvest, the Hebrews. They would take the first and the best of their crop, and they would present it to God. That was the first fruits. We are, when we're born again, we become the first fruits of the redeemed, right? And we, we become raptured, and in the book of Revelation, it talks about the, the tribulation saints, right? But we are the first fruits. We're the, in this time period. It's a very exciting time to be. So these good and constant and eternal things are also a contrast with what we saw before, with what temptation and sin bring. Now, if you're hearing this for the first time, God loves you, and God wants you to come to him. Well, how do I know this? Because the Bible says that God gave his only son, took the form of a man, came out of his comfortable abode in heaven, took the form of a man, and was in the, one of the worst time periods in, in human history. And he was, he was crucified, he shed his blood for the remission of our sins so that we could have eternal life. But we have to lay hold of that sacrifice. We have to want to take hold of that sacrifice. And some may say to me, well, Pastor Joe, you don't even know me, and you don't know my situation, so how do you know? You don't know what I've done. You're right, I don't, but he does. And the Bible says that he knew you before he even put you together in your mother's womb, and he wants you to come to him. The Bible says it doesn't matter what you did. As long as you repent and break that cycle, he accepts you willingly and doesn't hold any of those things against you. So I'm just saying, if you're listening on a CD or you're listening on the website or you're here today and you don't, you've never heard these things, God loves you and he wants a relationship with you personally. Verse 19. Therefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. 
for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, or in light of this blessing, in light of this understanding, this is how we should behave. And this is good practical advice for anyone. Let's look at the two extremes. Number one, you have a person who doesn't listen, talks too often, and is quick to fly off the handle in complete contradiction to what we just read. That person is operating in the flesh. That person is exhibiting the works of the flesh. You have a person, second person, who takes time to listen, chooses their words carefully, and is not prone to bouts of wrath. That person is laying hold of the Spirit, right? Is doing the works of the Spirit. A wrathful character, the Bible says, is not an indicator of a righteous life. And it's also not a good way to further the kingdom of heaven. And this is certainly good marital advice. I mean, raise, well, you don't have to raise, don't raise your hand. But as a spouse, have you ever heard your spouse say, it doesn't matter, male, female, you know, we're all sinners. They start to say something, you think they're going in a direction, and you quickly cut them off because you're annoyed at where you think they're going. And they say, you know what, you didn't even let me finish. You didn't let me finish what I was saying. Then you feel foolish. Okay, so tell me I'm the only one that that's happened to. I don't think so. <laughs> and it's really good advice for any relationship to listen attentively, to be slow to speak, slow to wrath, and you will do well. I even found that as a seasoned police officer, you know, if I, give, if I go to a call and I'm meeting the person, no matter what the situation is for the first time, and I give them time to tell me and get it off their chest, the dialogue goes better. It's when they get cut off, right, by the rookie who doesn't understand people skills yet, it, it, can, it can escalate. You see what I'm saying? So just listen, listen, let them vent. And then I can always say, I let you talk, now it's my turn. And you know what? They have to listen. So it's good practical advice, no matter what field you're in, if you're a supervisor especially, if you're in any type of relationship, to be you know, slow to speak, quick to listen, listen attentively, and slow to wrath. But most important, this type of person exhibits a simple behavior that's a good witness to a transformed life. When you see that Christian who's just, it doesn't seem like anything bothers them, and they're just so low-key, and they listen, you know, what is it, a, a soft answer that turns away wrath. Somebody's, and you start just being calm. Now they actually have to lower their voice to listen to you, and they end up talking low, because they have to, because they didn't hear what you just said, because they're yelling at you, you know what I'm saying? So it would be great if we could do that all the time. Verse 21. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Another therefore. He says, therefore, what James is saying here is predicated upon what he had just said. He's building something here. Therefore, to live a righteous life, get rid of the immorality and give God's word a chance to grow in your heart and produce fruit. That implanted word has to go into the heart and produce fruit. If we want the word to take root in our heart, we need to push all the other junk out of the heart. And I couldn't help but think about my wife's gardening, <laughs> you know. My wife is a gardener. I'm only a gardener through marriage. But, 
But every spring, she gets out there and, you know, she's gone for hours outside. And she's out there and she's pulling weeds and she's moving a wheelbarrow and she's moving dirt. And before she puts the bulbs in the ground or she puts the seeds in the ground or puts the plants in the ground, she wants to make sure that all the other junk is out, that the weeds are out, that the dead uh, vegetation from the last time, if anything needs to be pruned and take off the dead parts so that the other part, the energy of the plant, can go to you know, building fruit and leaves and all that kind of stuff. And she looks at the soil, the conditions have to be right, and fertilization. And before that seed grows or that bulb, the conditions have to be right. I have to laugh because she puts so much care into what she does that she'll often ask people, if they ask her to do something, are they going to take care of it? A pastor, a pastor friend of mine was over, and uh, he was like, he was blown away by the gardens last summer. And he said, I'll pay you to come over and do that at my house. And she said, will you upkeep on it? And he said, no. She goes, then I'm not doing it for you. This is how much care she puts into those seeds growing. And you can see the example here, okay? This is a picture of spiritual seed. What did Jesus say? The parable of the sower, Right? He said, you throw the seed, the word of God, and depending on what type of ground it falls on is depending on if that seed is going to grow and take root, right? It's a good gardening principle. The same thing with spiritually. In order for it to take root in our heart, you've got to get the weeds out. You know, in order for it to grow into a beautiful crop that will transform your whole being, you've got to move some of that junk out of there, right? So that the energy can go, grow to that spiritual seed and, and grow up into a beautiful crop. Not only does God's word save but it has the ability to transform and transcend the mind, the spirit, the will, and our behavior. It has the ability to do that if we allow it. Verse 22, James repeats the warning against self-deception. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Being a doer of the word is action-oriented. Well, it comes from the heart, but it's action-oriented, and it's two-pronged. Number one, works. And we're going to get to works. James is really going to get uh, hit works in the later chapters. So we're going to get to that. But two is obedience. As Christians, we need to hear the word of God, but we also need to be obedient to the word of God. And even if we sin, which we do, or we're you know, being in a funk in our own thing, in our own world, and we know, and I've been there. I've been like, okay, I'm being a baby. I'm throwing a tantrum. I know what your word says. Lord, I'll get around to it. You know what I'm saying? But I know the word so well that even when I'm not behaving properly, I know I'm not behaving properly because I know I'm not matching with what the word says. I'm not doing it. I'm not following it. The worst Christian witness is one that talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk. In that case, it's better to remain quiet. We brought a guy in, and I have to speak in generalities for a lot of reasons, and I, you know, for ethical reasons I would. We brought a guy in who hit his wife. Right? He's in the station. He was getting processed. And he proceeds to tell my officers about how he's saved and they're not, how he's one of the elect and they're not, okay? And I tell you, I felt like my head was going to explode. You know, I said, listen, bro, keep your mouth shut. These guys, you know, I'm trying to work on them, and it's, it's, I'm building a bridge with these guys, and you're telling them this kooky doctrine, and you just came in from hitting your wife. It's better off to shut up. I mean, you think they're going to listen to anything that you say? So we need to be obedient to the word. And when I'm not right with the Lord, I shut up. And I have to get right before I talk to somebody about Jesus. And it's just the way it's got to be. Verse 23. Okay, this is, this is really interesting here. James uses another word picture for a hearer and not a doer. He says that you look in the mirror and you walk away from the mirror and you forget what you look like. That's kind of absurd, isn't it? 
raise your hand because I'm going to raise mine. How many people before they came to church this morning looked in the mirror? Probably all of us. Why? Want to make sure we don't have a piece of food stuck in our teeth or a booger on our nose or it's really unspiritual to go to church with a booger on your nose. You see what I'm saying? So you look at a mirror to look at your, your temporal, your fleshly condition. Fix your hair, make yourself look presentable. But James here is speaking about a reflection of a spiritual condition. So cool. Mirror. Physical. I, can, I, I walk away from a mirror, I know what I look like. Am I blonde? Do I have red hair? Do I have freckles? I know what I look like. If I saw a 10 most wanted picture and my face was on there, I'd panic and say, well, something's wrong because I know what I look like and I know that's my face on that picture, a telephone pole. So James is saying, you look in a mirror, you look at your natural self, you walk away, you forget what you look like, which is absurd. But here, here the mirror uh, picture is used to reflect the spiritual condition. It's tragic for a deceiver to be so self-deceived that they don't see that they have a poor spiritual condition. They don't see that they're just a hearer and not a doer. God's word is transforming. Either we allow it to transform it, us or we don't. It, either it's a compartmentalized Sunday Christian faith or it isn't. What is it? You see, when you look in the mirror, okay, I, just, I brought a mirror with me today. See this Bible? This is a mirror. You look at it. I'll read it to you. I'll read it to me. Oh, look, I see my reflection. And what it shows us is what our spiritual condition is. And I'm reading what the Bible says. And James is pretty um, convicting. And I look at the mirror and I say, gee, Joe DeProsimo, you don't really measure up with everything that you're reading here. I'm looking at a mirror. So the question is, when you leave here today, do you remember what you saw when you looked at that mirror? Or did you just somebody ask you, hey, what would you learn about today? Oh, the pastor talked about a booger on my nose. I certainly hope <laughs> that that's not all we remember when we leave church today. Right? Verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. The one will be blessed in what he does. Sounds like an oxymoron, really, the law of liberty. Wait a minute. A law constrains, right? Don't speed. Don't steal. Don't murder. You know, don't lie. Don't, 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 don't. That's what the law says, doesn't it? It constrains us. And liberty is something that frees us. But check this out. God's law gives freedom to the receiver, right? It gives freedom to the receiver. When we look into God's law, it's actually freeing to us because it allows us to be who we were created to be. Like the Miranda rights. You have the right, when you look into the law of liberty, to the following. Number one, you have the right to not be deceived or be forgetful of what manner of person you are. Number two, you have the right to live free from enslaving desires and emotions because they are. If I was to go with all my desires and motions, you, you wouldn't know what day to catch me on. Well, when, what's the pastor like today? Hey, um, I'd like to counsel with you. What mood are you in today? Desires and emotions are enslaving because we're at their whims. We're up, we're down, we're up, we're down. This thing helps to keep us flatlined, keeps us to where we need to be. Three, we have the right to be transformed by God's word and do it from a joyful heart. Some folks serve grudgingly. You know, I got to do this is my job. No. When we serve God, we need to serve God with joy. And number four, we have the right to be blessed from living a godly life. That's what he says here. Verse 26, last two chapters or verses for today. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble 
and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is the third time, did you catch this, that James speaks about deception. Okay, and here we have self-deception. Here, assuming a spiritual walk and not having a bridle on your tongue, James says, it doesn't, the two of them don't equate. We'll get more on the tongue later because James is going to expound upon it. He, he does that. He gives us a little taste of something, and then later on he really expounds upon it. But this is another example of self-deception. If we can't bridle our tongues, our religion or spirituality is really kind of useless. And verse 27, let me contrast uh, with the don'ts and the do's here. Do you want to be truly spiritual or religious? Help those in need, widows and orphans. Okay, walk the walk. Don't just talk the talk. Oh yeah, and there's something else. I've heard this a lot. Widows and orphans, widows and orphans. But they forget that what goes with that. It says yes, and be unspotted by the world. As a matter of fact, the translation is, it's, it's a harsher translation. When you look up into the Greek, it's a pollution. It's toxic. Okay, James is telling us, yeah, take care of widows and orphans, but also don't be polluted by the world's culture, contemporary culture. Because every culture, a Christian in every time period, even under Constantine, Wow, wow, we're not persecuted anymore. The emperor became a Christian. Well, he paganized Christianity. So sometimes that's even tougher. But the, the bottom line is widows and orphans, yes, but also don't be polluted by the world. That means don't be polluted by the part of the contemporary culture that's toxic. Don't be carnal, worldly, fleshly, materialistic, self-centered, and any other appropriate adjective. Now, we're pretty much done, but let me string this all together for you, okay? Let me show you what a hypothetical Christian looks like today who doesn't follow anything that James says. I'll just take it all together and see what we think. This person, sadly, is a sporadic Sunday Christian. They're not involved otherwise in any other spiritual activities or events. They don't serve the Lord in any way, but they complain about everything. They complain about their spouse, they complain about their kids, their parents, their church, their pastor, their life, and what God hasn't done for them lately. This is a person who listens to a sermon and doesn't apply it, may even get offended at the pastor that they were resisting the Holy Spirit's convicting preaching, and they were mad at the pastor because they felt uncomfortable and squirmed in their seat. This is a person who has a critical spirit, can't control their tongue, and cuts others with their tongue as if it were a sword. You ever meet somebody like that? They're just so good with their tongues that they could, the pen is mightier than the sword. You ever read an article in the paper about, about somebody and they just really slash and burn the person? It'd be better the person would rather be shot than read that article about themselves. This is a person that's not transformed by God's word, has no idea what the scripture says because they look in the mirror and they forget, but they follow all the TV personalities, actors, act actresses, shows, name brands, and trends of popular culture. I tell you, I don't have time for a person like that. Oh, you're a pastor, you're supposed to. Give me the drug dealers, give me the drug addicts, give me the gang members, give me the prostitutes, the thieves, all day long than this type of Christian. And you know what 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says that he, he likens it to leaven. He really says that type of person in the church is a cancer because that behavior spreads and it helps other folks drink in that fleshly nature and become like that. And all of a sudden, now you've got a problem on your hand in your church. This is a very convicting book for God's people. It's convicting to me, and it only is going to get better. <laughs> it's only going to get hotter. <laughs> so it can be cold out, but we're going to be hot when we start reading this. So if we look at today's section, it's all about contrasts. Number one, 
review, God is not the author of temptation, but he is the author of all good gifts. Don't allow sin to conceive and grow into a monster, but allow the seed of God's word to grow and plant into our hearts and grow to a fruitful crop. Don't be like the person who looks in the mirror and can't see the spiritual condition, but looks into the perfect law of liberty, transforms our lives, helps us to be free to live a blessed and godly life. Don't think that we're spiritual if we can't bridle our tongues. Be truly spiritual by helping those who can't help themselves and not be polluted by contemporary pop culture. James said three, three times, don't be deceived, and worse yet, don't be self-deceived. But Jesus said, know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. We